Let's uh, turn over to Colossians chapter 2 now. We looked at Colossians 1 last week. Oh, and by the way, I have a paper that says, Pastor Dave, could you please announce that we will be taking down the Christmas decorations this Sunday after third service. So I was wondering about that today, walking through here, how long these decorations were going to stay up. So if you're around Sunday after third service, um, it goes really quick taking them down if we have you know, a, a decent amount of people. So, so um, if you're not too busy on Sunday, that'd be cool if some of you would stick around and help out. We started the book of Colossians last week, and I shared about how Paul was writing to this church, Colossae, there in Turkey, It was a church that he had never been to, and most of the people there he didn't know personally. He knew a few of them, and and of course Epaphras, who probably started the church, was a convert of Paul's when Paul was in Ephesus. But he was getting concerned because in Colossae and in the town Laodicea, which was right by Colossae, they were about 80 to 100 miles inland from Ephesus, he was hearing about a lot of false teaching that was going on. And it was something that was sort of inevitable after a church is there for a while. And this is something that we fight today as much as they were then, that after God works and great things are happening, it opens the door to people coming in and teaching some stuff that's just a little off. Typically, ironically, these are often people who seem very spiritual. In fact, people who seem really, really spiritual, I just tend to not trust them. Because some of the, some of the most spiritual-seeming people are some of the biggest kooks in the world in terms of some of the things they believe and teach. And, and, and so they come off real syrupy, um, deep and, and philosophical and mystical. and But see, mysticism in and of itself, although there's a place for you know, some things that you might describe as mystical within Christianity, there's a place in Christianity for personal experiences with God and, and a depth of relationship in the Spirit. Yet, if you, if you look for that as your end quite often you'll end up being led astray. And so that was happening there in Colossae and in Laodicea, and Paul was deeply concerned about it. And, and you're always at a disadvantage when you're teaching the Word and there's somebody else who comes along and says, we have something deeper than that. And you can see this throughout church history. A great revival, a real revival, always comes from a renewal of the teaching of the Word of God, the simple truth of the Word of God. There is no legitimate revival that doesn't come from that. But whenever that happens, sliding in behind it are people who want to co-opt that movement of God and say, we have a deeper experience of it. And quite often, a part of that is to ridicule the people who are studying the Word of God and saying, oh, you're just worshiping a book. And they'll say things like, you believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Bible as the Trinity. You're not deep enough into the Spirit. 
You're not deep enough into the experiences that you want to have. And that's an easy bit to fight for. That's an easy thing to get people excited about because as you begin to grow in the Lord, you certainly want to go deeper in your relationship with God. And so when people are acting like they have something that's deeper, people will flood to that. Um, Partly because sometimes teaching the Word of God can seem boring. Because God's on a different level than we are, and the Bible has so many different levels. If you think the Bible is boring, you're just not looking at it closely enough. But there are parts of it that are necessary to know in order to understand the bigger picture. And there aren't always really thrilling and entertaining ways to go through that content. And you know, we've been through most of the Bible, and there are some of it that just is plain more fun than others. So a lot of people just neglect most of the Bible, and they just go to the fun parts. Or they just will teach topically and just go, you know, every week I'm going to meet people's felt needs by saying, this Sunday we're going to do five ways to be more successful. And next Sunday we're going to tell you how to vote. And the Sunday after that, we're going to talk about how to gain financial blessing in your life. And the Sunday after that, how to have a happy marriage. And the next week, how to discipline your children. And of course, people will flock to that kind of stuff as opposed to, we're in Leviticus this month. (laughs) And I get that. But the thing is, the truth is, if you study the whole Bible, God touches on every topic that there ever was in a glorious context, and you really come to understand it in a way that will help you to grow. And just having either ear-tickling teaching or deep mystical experiences, getting together and spending two hours of feeling warm all over, or feeling like I just feel the Holy Spirit coming on me like cotton candy, or you know, laughing in the Spirit, or barking in the Spirit, or claiming that you're getting fillings filled, you know, and I can never figure out at these from these evangelists, how come when people get their teeth filled, it's not filled with tooth, it's filled with fillings, but, you know, and then, oh, let's have people come up here if they're sick, and oh, one leg shorter than the other, pull on it a little bit, oh, glory to God, and everybody's happy, and everyone's excited, that's always an easy way to attract people. And especially if you make people feel like, if you're one of us, you're going to be better than most of those people out there. You're going to have a deeper experience. And I'm conscious of this, and and I want to make this really clear too. Because we teach through the Bible, we are not better than people who don't. I'm not looking down my nose at what people are doing in other churches. And I'm not saying that the way we do it is the only way to do it or is the right way to do it. Obviously, the way we do it is the way I think we ought to do it because I'm here. But, but see, you don't ever want to make people feel like, and I don't ever want you to feel like, because you come here, you are so solid and strong 
And you really have something that those other people don't have. And if I appealed to that, it would, it would work. You'd feel, yes, we are smarter than the average church. Um, but I'm telling you, I don't care how deep you go with the Lord, the most important thing for you to know is how little you know. The most important thing you need God to do is to keep you humble. And believe me, I've studied the Bible probably more than most people have, definitely. And the more I study it, the more I'm amazed at what a mess I am, at what, how huge God is, and about how, boy, I need to stay humble. I can't start getting too cocky. I can't start thinking I'm somebody special. I need to realize I need God every second of my life. I need him. I don't just need him to save me and get me to heaven. I need him. He is the God, as Daniel said, in whom our very breath is. He is the one, as we saw last week, everything holds together by him. I'm not holding my life together. I'm not holding this church together. Jesus Christ is. And the more I study, the more I'm aware of that. Pride is the biggest threat and the biggest danger to Christians because pride is what will cause you to go independent. Pride is what will cause you to look down at others and therefore not to minister to them in the right spirit. Pride is what will cause you to overinflate your own importance. Pride is what will cause you to take on things that you shouldn't. Pride is what will cause you to create a distance between you and others and make you ultimately divisive. And so if there's one problem as Christians we need to work about, it's avoiding pride. And really experiencing God does that. Being in his presence puts you on your knees, it puts you on your face, it causes you to realize that, wow, I need him desperately. But there are all kinds of spiritual practices that in and of themselves might be good, but often when people get into them, it causes them to take on a sense of, boy, everybody else needs to be the way I am. And it can be something really good like prayer, to where it's like, man, I love to pray. And then I start to think, I love to pray more than most people do. I pray for hours and it's too bad most people don't. If all these other people were praying, actually these prayers would get answered. But I think it's just me and a few of my friends that are the only ones that are praying. And oh, how they need to pray. And oh, how they need to discover this. And, and I spend all my time praying that God will cause other people to pray as much as I do. And then I start to, to just look at other people in sort of a pathetic way. Huh. You guys just don't understand the deeper things of the Spirit. You don't understand, you know, the the intimacy with God. And I can and, and I can even anthropomorphize God, which means to to impute to God human characteristics. Um, anthropomorphize would be to see God as as being um, like the body of a man. So I mean when the Bible talks about God's hands or his eyes, those are anthropomorphisms. Probably even more common are anthropopathisms, which would credit to God the emotion and the, um, the pathology of a human. And so 
that opens the door to then think that it's just me and God. I hear from God. I do whatever God says. And I become isolated. I don't listen to common sense. I don't check out what I think God's telling me with his word. I just, you know, feel God breathing down my neck. I know how close I am to him. I just love to sit there and feel him. Okay. But, but see... What a lot of times that does is, and when it's wrong, you can tell it instantly. It just gives you a feeling of superiority, and it alienates you from others. And that was the kind of thing that was happening in Colossae. Now, not only was it this idea that it, they were turning Christianity into a mystery cult, that the deepest things of Christianity, I can't even tell you or I'd have to shoot you. It's, they're really secret and you're going to have to walk with God for a long time, and you're going to have to fast and pray and deny yourself and, and follow the law, and you're going to have to do, jump through all kinds of hoops, and eventually you may understand what I'm talking about, but it's just so deep and secret, I can't even explain it to you. It's spooky. And so they got into that. They incorporated into it angels. They, they were basically worshiping angels, they were always talking about demons. They were, you know, it was a demon under every bush. It, they were crediting demons with everything that was going on, casting demons out of believers, and, and all of these kinds of things that are still around a lot today among people who think they're more spiritual than you are. But all of this was happening, and what was happening is their version of Christianity was being built up into a cult. It was a cult that ultimately grew into what we call Gnosticism. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which is knowledge, and they had the idea that they have a special knowledge. And they, they came to the conclusion that the body is evil, everything material is evil, and everything spiritual is good. So the later Gnostics would teach that Jesus didn't have a physical body, that he was just a ghost, that he didn't leave a shadow, that he didn't leave footprints when he walked on the sand, ridiculous things like that, despite the fact that Jesus himself had said, look, after his resurrection, said, I have flesh and bones like you do. Here, Thomas, put your finger in my, into my side. You'll see it's real. He sat there and ate fish with the disciples. I mean, but the, the Gnostics believed that, no, because our bodies are bad. And everything physical is bad. And they would either try to deny the body or they would try to ignore the body. If they ignored the body, they just decided, oh man, you can't win with the body, so forget the body, let's just get into a deep spiritual thing. If they believed that they could defeat the body, they would deny themselves and put restrictions on themselves. And they reverted to extreme um, obedience to Jewish laws and regulations and things like that. And so Paul saw that in Colossae, Christianity that started so simply was now just becoming cluttered up with all this mystery and all this hoopla and all of these mystical experiences and all this angel baloney and demon baloney and all of this you know, physical versus non-physical. And now they were getting Gentiles to try to get circumcised and to keep the Sabbath and to keep all the Jewish festivals, and because we want to make you into the kind of people who are worthy of God. 
the cross is what makes you worthy of God. Nothing else. Nothing else. That's the gospel. You're covered. You're taken care of. You don't have to do anything to turn you into somebody who's closer to God. He's already close to you. You'll have a better life if you listen to him and walk with him and obey him. But nothing that you do is going to get God all excited and say, ooh, I'm going to show up now. And In the way that some people will say, when worship is really good, which generally means we hired some really top professionals. And then it's like you could just feel it. It's so, I mean, and you start to think that's the spirit. When you get like some great band up there to play and it just touches you somewhere um, and you go, ooh, I can sense the spirit. And then people will say, you know, wow, because we're worshiping God, God's going to show up. No, he's always there. He, he doesn't show up because he's entertained by our music. He doesn't show up because now we're feeling kind of fuzzy and oozy, and so now God goes, oh, yeah, you know, you guys are all tripping out and <laughs> like a bunch of hippies in the 60s, so now I'm going to show up and really make you feel that way. You know, Hey, people feel that way at an Aerosmith concert. That's not God. That's just you like music, okay? But this was what was happening in Colossae. And so, and so Paul was just going, I've got to explain to these people to not outgrow Christianity, to not add stuff that will actually detract, that will actually take you away from what really matters what's really important. And so, as he's been telling them that already, and he, he says, I'm laboring on your behalf, verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, for I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. He goes, this is awkward. I don't know you personally, but man, I'm really struggling with this. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, you don't know me, you might be wondering who do I think I am, telling you this stuff, but this is important. And he says, I'm, I'm really conflicted because I want their hearts to be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. He says, look, I don't want to turn you off. I don't want you to get mad. I don't want you to think I'm some old fuddy-duddy who, who resents the deep experiences you're having or who wants to keep you from learning the deeper things of God. He said, That's, I don't want to come off that way. But because of all this weirdness, I'm almost inevitably going to come off like I'm trying to throw a wet blanket on your fun. And I'm trying to quench the spirit that you think is working within your life. And he goes, man, I, I'm really struggling because I don't want to come off that way. If anything, I want you to experience the full assurance of understanding. I want you to know the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. I want you to understand the deepest things of God. Now, whenever the Bible talks about mystery, 
It's not talking about something that you just can't explain. It's not talking about something that you don't really know, but you just feel. When God, when the Bible talks about mystery, it's talking about what they didn't know about until Jesus came and introduced himself and died and rose from the dead. There's nothing in the Bible about any mystery beyond the fact that Jesus died for our sins, forgave us, rose from the dead, and will come again for us. And so he's saying, I'm not against mystery, but I want you to realize you've got the mystery. You have everything that you need, that full assurance. I don't want you to be feeling like, oh, I feel like I'm missing something. Because see, I mean, you could do that to anyone, any Christian. You know, you could go to them and say, do you ever feel like, I mean, you've accepted the Lord, he's forgiven your sins, and you've grown, and a lot of good things have happened, but do you ever feel like there's something still missing? I mean, how many of you honestly would go, yeah, I feel that. I mean, I do. It's an it's a easy thing to appeal to people because, in a sense, there is something missing. <laughs> we're not in heaven yet, and we're not with Jesus, but it's not a mystery. We know what's missing, and we know that one day it will be ours, and it's, it's horrible and it's blasphemous, for somebody to pitch their little twist on things and use the discontentedness that we feel as a, as a hook to pull you off into somebody's latest fad. Because that fad will not satisfy you, and you're going to have to keep going, finding more fads. And you're going to jump from experience to experience. Paul's saying, I want you to have everything. And I want you to know the mystery. You've got it. And then he goes on and makes it clear what that is. Because it's in Christ, in the Father and Christ and the Spirit. Interesting that he leaves the Spirit out here, probably because these people were pushing the Spirit so much. Spirit never pushes himself. But he says, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Everything that you need is in Jesus. And he goes on and says, Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. So he says, There are people who would try to con you. And I'm with you spiritually. And I want you to understand what you need to know. And he said, I have a feeling that you're on top of this. He uses two military terms there when he says, to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Those are two. The word there for um, order is a word that meant to exactly know what your place is and to go through proper chain of command, and steadfastness refers to that, that dedication that just continues to drive forward, that doesn't retreat, that doesn't surrender. And he says, I know you guys are that way spiritually. In other words, you're not out of control. You're in order. You are systematically studying the Word, 
And you, it's not a free-for-all. You're not at your churches. You're not allowing these extremists to just be dominating the church. You're not allowing them to just stand up and share whatever they want to share. You're not bringing in evangelists every week, another guy with another trick, another scam. He said, I have a feeling you guys are orderly enough and dedicated enough that when you understand the truth, I think that's going to be sufficient for you. So I don't want you guys to think you're already, that I think you're already out of control. I think you're, I think you have a handle on things. I just want to encourage you to continue in that way. And so he says, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. That is a key verse. Something that we need to remember. The same way that you receive Christ is the same way that you walk in Christ. It's not something else. It's not something new. It's not a whole different spin. How did you receive Christ? By grace, through faith. You depended on him. You believed in him. You gave your life to him. He took over. He goes, remember how you got saved? Well, keep doing that same thing. That's why, see, the gospel, the preaching of the gospel is so important. And that's why, like on Sundays, I always make sure that whatever it is we're teaching on, that somehow I mention the gospel, if nothing else, at the end of the service. Because the fact that Jesus died and rose from the dead and that he saves us by his grace... That's essentially all you need to know. That's how we get saved, and that's how we live. Now, the whole rest of the Bible sheds light on that, and everything else we study and everything that we learn helps us to appropriate that, but it always has to come back to that. A relationship with God is not an experience, although it often involves experience. But it's always about faith it's always about grace. It's always about Jesus. It's always about what he did. And if we get too far away from that, we're missing the point of the faith. And so, again, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught abounding in it with thanksgiving. Keep living Jesus. Keep living the gospel. Keep experiencing his grace. Keep asking for his forgiveness. Keep realizing that you need him completely. Keep sharing with others what Jesus has done for you. Stick with that. I, I sometimes hear people talking about the gospel and, and, and even in a derogatory way, talking about people who are already who are always preaching the gospel as being, well, that's just the milk of the word. I want the meat. <laughs> no, the gospel is the meat. There's nothing more important than the gospel. And anytime I hear someone preach the gospel, I'm not sitting there going, ooh, I hope there are non-Christians here to hear this. No way, man. That has everything to do with me. It's why... I never get tired of hearing Greg Laurie preach simple messages. They're always gospel messages. And I always need that. Now, 
there are a lot of different types of teachers who teach in a lot of different ways, but the value of teaching will be in direct proportion to what it has to do with what Jesus Christ has done for us and about his grace. Don't ever grow past that. Don't ever say, okay, okay, I've got that down. I shared before one time how I was watching a, a very famous pastor being interviewed on TV by a secular um, television station. And the guy said, you know, I've read your books. I've watched you on TV for hours. And this guy's on TV every time you turn the TV on. Best-selling books and everything. And he said, I don't hear you talking about Jesus much. And the guy looked a little stunned. And he goes, what do you mean? And he goes, well, I mean, I thought you were a Christian pastor, but I don't hear you saying much about Christ. And, and this pastor tragically said, he said, you know, oh no, we believe all that. We believe Jesus died, rose from the dead and everything, but how much can you say about that? The way I look at it, all that's been covered, and I need to tell people how to have a better life, how to have happy marriages, how to be successful. And I just thought, that is how to have a happy life. That is how to have a good marriage. That is how to be successful. Jesus, the gospel, grace. And it's so sad when we lose that perspective. And Paul was just adamant about this. No, no, no. Stay there with that. Now, that doesn't mean you always give a simplistic message. Um, it is simple. And like Pastor Chuck always says, simply teach the Word of God simply. And I absolutely believe that. But the Bible is very incredibly complex and deep, and there, there are certainly so many layers to the Scriptures that every message isn't just standing up and going, Jesus died for you, it's for free, and he saved you by grace, although that should be a part of every message, I think. Still, boy, the ramifications of the gospel are enormous. And so I love to listen to people who teach very deeply as long as it's about Jesus, as long as Jesus has something to do with it. Um, if you're going to leave him out of it, I don't see the value. And that's why Paul said, I preach Christ and him crucified. I determined when I came to you to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so he's just letting them know, no, that, that's not just the beginning stuff and you need to add on to it. That is the stuff. Beware, he says, oh, you're rooted and built up in that faith and as you've been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. And then he says, beware, lest anyone cheat you, rip you off through philosophy, loving wisdom, and empty deceit, conning, according to the tradition of men, teaching you just things that are human tradition, according to the basic principles of the world, how to succeed, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power.
This is, as I said Sunday, Colossians 2.9 is a verse that is as important as any other verse in the Bible. It's a verse that teaches the deity of Christ in as strong a way as it possibly could. It's not like the Jehovah's Witnesses. You know, he's a God. It's not as the Mormons. Yeah, he's God, but lots of people are gods, and we'll all become gods someday. It's like, no. Everything that there is to God is in Jesus Christ. And he used the word that later the Gnostics would make a, a huge word. It's that fullness, pleroma. And their idea of the pleroma was that it's the whole scheme of existence that exists between God and man. And in their system, it was a series of angels, and it was leaps of faith, and it was steps, and it was denying your flesh, and it was keeping the law, and like all this stuff put together was a total package that if you did it all, you might end up feeling this mystical connection with God. So all of that was called the Pleroma, this long staircase, stairway to heaven, if you will. Apologies. Um, but that was the Pleroma to the, to the Gnostics. And so Paul goes, in him dwells. This is where it lives. This is where it's at home. In him dwells all the Pleroma, all the fullness of the Godhead in a bodily form. <laughs> a couple of really important things there. It's, he's not part God. He's not half God. He's not posing as God. He's not similar to God. He's not a special agent of God. He's not the offspring of God. No, in him, everything that there is to God, the whole Godhead, the total package, dwells in him. And then notice, bodily. Ooh, and that would have really shattered them too. Because they thought the body was bad. And he's saying, no, in a body dwells everything that there is to God, everything that there is to getting to God, everything that there is to the entire Godhead, right there, in that body. <laughs> and that is mind-blowing to them, no doubt. But the idea is, no, it's just Jesus. Whenever you want to experience of God, it's, it's in Jesus. Jesus isn't just a part of God. He is God, and he's in a body. That means He's one of us. He's connected to us. He intercedes for us. We'll, we will know him as we are known. We will see him face to face, everything that there is to God. And then he says, and you are complete in him. That word for complete is the same word, uh, is a derivative of the same word play Roma, fullness. All of God completely in him and because you have him, you're complete. You have everything you need. Like we were saying Sunday, the Lord is my shepherd. 
and that's all I want. I shall not want. I'm not missing anything. I'm not lacking anything. There isn't a piece that you know, somebody needs to explain to me. There isn't something else I need to learn to come into a fullness. No. The fullness is in him, and you are full in him. Period. No other thing that you add to that. As much as that might appeal to you, as much as you may look for some easy thing that's going to make it better, it doesn't get any better than being complete in the one in whom completely the Godhead exists. So stop looking elsewhere. It's Jesus. It's about him. That's amazing. And he is the head of all principality and power. There's no other power There's no other spirit, there's no other mystical connection, there's no other angel, there's no other demon that you need to worry about. He is all in all, and he is all yours. You are his, if you're his child. And now he begins to discuss the legalism that was creeping in, and in light of who Jesus is, saying, what are you doing returning to these artificial standards for behavior and somehow thinking that's going to connect you with God? In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead." They were teaching Gentiles, you need to get circumcised, for starters. Probably not a popular, I mean, I don't don't think that was a huge um, church growth concept. But they were telling people that. And he goes, no, 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 no. Circumcision was an Old Testament thing that would speak of being separated from the flesh. But he said, baptism for you is the equivalent to what circumcision was for the Jewish people, but it hurts a lot less. But see, it's that same connection of saying, I'm buried with him in baptism. When I am baptized, I am saying, the old me is dead. And when I come up with that newness of life, I am saying, I'm dead to that old person, I'm dead to the flesh, And God has given me a new life. And he says, why in the world would you feel like you need to do some fleshly thing when you have been taken care of by Jesus himself? And if you've been baptized, you're saying, hey, I have experienced a newness of life. The old me is buried. The new me rose with Jesus as he was raised from the dead. What more do you want than that? It's silly. It's a contradiction. And he says, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, the whole list of what we were guilty of, the law in other words, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. 
how we need to understand this. Everything that you ever did of your flesh and every sin that you ever commit, either it has been forgiven because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, or you are going to hell because you can't take care of it yourself. The Old Testament, they couldn't follow it. It was this list of requirements that were contrary to us, as he says here. In other words, God is telling you to be something that you can't be on your own. So either all your sins are forgiven, nailed to the cross, as he says here. You were dead. Dead people can't save themselves. And he gave you life because he forgave all your trespasses. Either that's true, or you can circumcise yourself all you want. That is not going to make you righteous. You can keep the law as much as you can try, and all it will do is still prove to you that you can't do it. And so he's going, what do you need more than all of your trespasses being forgiven? What do you need more than the fact that the old you is dead? And there's a new you that he gave life to. He's wiped out the requirements that were against us. He took it out of the way and he nailed it to the cross. And if you have accepted Jesus Christ by faith, if you're truly his child, then everything that could ever be named against you, everything you would ever be accused of, was nailed to the cross. It's, it's gone. It's history. God will not remember it against you anymore. No one. Who, who is the accuser of the brethren? He's Satan, because he's a liar. And if you are feeling accused, and if you are feeling condemned, and if you sin, which you do, and you confess it, you admit that it's sin, and you still feel guilty about it, you're denying that that sin is nailed to the cross. And that holds you back. That rips you off. That will rob you of the freedom that is in Christ. And it will cause you eventually to try to pay God back. It'll cause you eventually to try to find some way to be good enough. Now, I don't want to go on sinning. Because as I get his perspective and as he sets me free... I realize what sin has been doing to me and to others. And so, of course, I want his righteousness to grow in my life. But the only way that will ever happen is if I accept 100% that I am clean, that my sins were nailed to the cross, and that Jesus Christ did everything that I need to have my eternity taken care of. What are you going to add to that? See, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. There's no sin you can come up with that isn't included in all sin. And the Christian life is a life of realizing that and walking in that freedom and that blessing and praising Him and thanking Him constantly for the fact that it's all accomplished that as when Jesus was on the cross and he said, it is finished, or in the Greek, te telestai, which was, which was something 
that's the end is literally what it means, but that was what they would stamp on a bill after you paid it off. It's the equivalent to paid in full. When he said paid in full, he was talking about you and me and our sin problem. What are you going to add to that? You're going to go, well, here, Jesus, let me give you a tip. You know, now you owe him 10% or whatever. No, 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 you, you owe him everything. But he's not squeezing you for it. He's not trying to get anything out of you. He doesn't, like, get all excited because, you know, you're trying harder. He died for you. And your sins were nailed to the cross, and so were mine. And that is what it's all about. That's the final word. That is the meaning of the Christian life is my sins have been forgiven by Jesus Christ who died for me, and i got to live there. But how radically that changes my life if I believe it. Because as it begins to soak in that I'm clean, a couple of things happen. Boy, the pressure is off. I can hear from him. I, I can love him. I don't have to go run and hide like Adam and Eve when they were naked. I can run to him even when I've blown it. But also, when I realize he's forgiven me, I start to notice there are other people who are forgiven too. And I can stop holding a grudge, and I can stop fighting with people, and I can stop my bitterness. I can forgive people easily because of what I've been forgiven of. And if I realize you're his child, you've been forgiven too. Why should I lay a charge against you if that charge is nailed to the cross. If you're a jerk to me, it hurts my feelings. But guess what? I'll be the first one to tell you, Jesus died for the fact that you were a jerk to me. And he paid for it. It's already taken care of. Now, does that free you to just be more of a jerk? Um, I don't think so. It causes all of us to begin to go, how great is this? This gospel, this good news that we're all forgiven, that we all start over fresh every second, that he loves us that much, that he paid for it all. Like the old song says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Look at the people around you. Maybe they don't look squeaky clean. Look in the mirror, maybe you don't look squeaky clean, but that's because you haven't noticed the cross. That's because you haven't noticed what he did about those sins that you're committing that other people are committing. And that's why Paul's just going, no, this is what it's all about. It doesn't get heavier than this. It doesn't get deeper than this. There will be no mystical experience you will ever have greater than the experience of being forgiven and learning to then in turn forgive others. That is life, eternal. Grace, it's free. There's nothing better than that. Nothing, no, no great weird experience that you ever have will compare to that knowledge, to that recognition. Nailed to the cross, I love that. And when he did that, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. When Jesus went to the cross, he disarmed 
principalities and powers. You want to trip out about demons? They completely had everything they had going for them taken away on the basis of the cross. In fact, Jesus Christ absolutely made fools of Satan and his demons. So am I going to get all preoccupied with them? No. Almost 2,000 years ago, something was accomplished that has made everything they've done ever since ridiculous and foolish. And I will not give them a bunch of my time or energy. And I'm not going to be tripping out on what they're up to. Jesus Christ defeated them already. Their doom is sealed. There's a place where one day they will be put to be there forever, them and anyone who really wants to be there with them. And they're done. They've been defeated already. When, when our sin was nailed to the cross, their best weapon was taken away from them. And all they can do now is lie, make a lot of noise, freak people out, trip people, but they're defeated. And therefore, we are not to worry about them because they were made a spectacle of when Jesus nailed our sins to the cross. So, he says, let no one judge you. See, if, if God says you're forgiven, if he says you're free, don't let anybody else judge you. God hasn't made me feel guilty very often. And when he does, I try to repent immediately and go, God, you're right. But other people make me feel guilty a lot. But Paul says, don't let them do that. Don't let them judge you. You've been forgiven. Don't let other people put a trip on you. Don't let other people make you feel inferior. Don't let other people point the finger at you. Don't let other people make up rules for your life. As he goes on to say, don't let anyone judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. It's important to remember that verse, Colossians 2.16. Whenever someone comes and tells you that we need to keep the Sabbath, or when they tell you not to have a second helping of dessert, comes in handy too, don't let anybody judge you about food, about drink, about holidays, about Sabbaths, new moons, festivals. No. People will try to and tell you that, oh, you need to eat, only eat this, and you shouldn't be eating that, and you can't drink this, and you, know, you ought to be celebrating that, and you need to keep the Sabbath. Paul says, don't let anybody judge you in any of that stuff. And therefore, obviously, what goes along with that, don't judge anyone else on those things either. It's, you're not to be judged. You're not to judge. He says, because those are a shadow, he's speaking specifically of the festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths, they're a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. The people who, there are people who today who think that we need to make the church more Jewish. And they even, you know, they want to call Jesus Yeshua. Or they, you know, they want to call God Jehovah or Yahweh or 
the name. And, and they want to say, you know, we need to get back into celebrating these holidays. Well, they haven't read Colossians 2 very closely. Because according to Paul, no, those things were good, but they were just a shadow. Jesus is the real thing. Jesus is where it all ends. He is the end all and be all of life. So don't get hung up. Now, if you want to celebrate you know, holidays, there's nothing wrong with it. But the point is, that's a shadow. Now, if you're going to celebrate Christmas, great, but make it about Jesus because that's what it's about. If you're going to celebrate Easter, don't make it just about you know, bunny rabbits. Make it about Jesus rising from the dead. He is, what, he is the meaning of that. If you're going to celebrate a birthday, great, celebrate your birthday, but celebrate that it's another year that God gave you of life, that you could worship him and serve him. Make it all about him. Everything is about him because he's given us everything. And don't let people judge you. Now, you need to look at your own life and be responsible. So if you feel convicted, like Paul said, some men hold one day above another, other men esteem all days alike. Okay, fine. You want to make a big deal about any day you want to make? If you want to make a big deal about the Sabbath, if you want to make a big deal about what you eat or what you drink or what you don't eat or what you don't drink, that's probably wise. I mean, there are times when I better judge what I eat and what I drink or I'll get myself in a lot of trouble. But I don't want somebody else doing that, questioning me. Because all that does is make me feel like I'm back in an era before Jesus died. No, I want people to remind me that I'm free. I want people to treat me and I want to treat other people like the gospel is really true and that it was really free and that we are really forgiven. I want you to know that more than I want you to have a good life even. Um, And so he says... Jesus is the whole thing. The substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility, like I was saying earlier. The people who seem the most humble are often the people who are really the most prideful. I know this one guy who like specializes in being humble, and he wrote a book about humility. Can you imagine that, writing a book about humility? And, I, and I've watched the guy, and I have a respect for him. He has some, some gifts and everything. But I just look at him, and I, and I saw him one time being interviewed, and he's just hanging his head. And they said, now, you said in your book that you are the worst man in the world. Do you really believe you're worse than Hitler? And he said, yes, I believe I'm worse than Hitler. I thought, you do not. Come on, you put your face on your book about humility. You know, you know. It, so often, most of what we think is humility is really false humility. I wish I was as humble as people think I am. But he's going, don't fall for that. Don't play that game. It's not about how humble you can act. It's about how much you can glorify Jesus Christ. So he says, you know, people will cheat you, delighting in false humility and worship of angels intruding into those things which he has not seen, getting hung up in mystical things, vainly puffed up by his fleshly pride. (coughs) It's ironic how much that's done in the name of spirit is really just flesh. He goes, 
That's the way it usually works. Don't be fooled by people who in the flesh try to act really spiritual. Really spiritual people don't act really spiritual. Jesus didn't. They were always amazed that he acted like such a normal guy, and he was the most spiritual guy ever. And sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors loved hanging out with the guy. They weren't intimidated by him. There's something about real spirituality that does not come off like our notion of spirituality, which is really just a fleshly, pseudo-spiritual pride. And he said, don't let anybody rip you off like that. And not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. He said, man, you just hang on to Jesus. You let him be the boss. You let it all be about him. All of us, we're a part of his body, but he is the central nervous system. And it's about him. It's not about people. It's not about a leader. It's not about a system. It's not about me or you or anything else. It's about Jesus. He holds it all together. Don't forget that, he says. And and it grows with the increase that is from God. If God is working in your life and you're letting Jesus have his proper place, you'll grow. If a church is glorifying Jesus Christ, teaching the truth of the gospel, I believe it'll grow. But it's because God does that. Because he likes to bless when his son is glorified. And that's our task. That's our number one task, is to keep it about Jesus. And growth comes from that, not from anything else. And so he says, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Why are you still just trying in your own ability to find little picky ways to think that you're better than other people? And he says, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. Are you creating a religious system, he says, that's all about what you do and what you don't do, how you look, what you wear, what you say, what you'll touch, what you'll eat? What? Are you just making up a religion? And all of that stuff, it's all going to burn. It's all temporary. It's not going to matter in the final analysis. In the final analysis, all that matters is Jesus. And so he goes, don't, don't turn Christianity into a religion. Don't try to make it as much like the other religions as possible with as much symbolism and as much ritual and as much you know, special language that nobody really knows what it means and you know, hidden codes and things like that and making it really complicated. He goes... Come on, man, that stuff doesn't matter in the long run. Jesus is what matters. And so why in the world, if you've died to the flesh, are you spending so much of your time consumed with the flesh, trying to get things that are fleshly, trying to achieve and accomplish things that don't last, and putting a God stamp on it, like, yeah, really, I'm doing this for God to make him proud? I'm building a big cathedral, because I'm sure he'll really like it. Come on. He doesn't care about that kind of stuff. He doesn't care about how impressive 
his people look to other people. He, he, God doesn't get excited when one of his representatives gets on Larry King or something. He's just like, that's not going to matter. I mean, look at Larry King. How long could he last? I, I think he's been dead for years. But <laughs> Just kidding. But he's going, stop spending your time on things that are temporary and thinking that that is spirituality. After the feeling's gone, what's left? Which all concern things which perish with the using, they're all disposable, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, oh poor you, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh." That's a great description of false religion. It appears to be wise. It's self-imposed. It's false humility. It usually denies the body of pleasure. But it's of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Paul is calling this stuff out for what it is. And it is as common today as it was in the first century in Colossae and Laodicea. Satan doesn't have anything new. And human nature is still human nature. And when left to ourselves, we can take something beautiful like the gospel and we can very quickly turn it into tradition and religion and false humility and something that embarrasses him. It's so simple. It's so glorious. Our sins have been nailed to the cross. That's the message. It's free. Let's stop turning it into a way of life. Let's stop turning Christianity into just another religion. That's disgusting to God. It's a waste of time, and we'll spend all our time worrying about and consumed about things that are going to run down the drain, things that are going to burn, things that are going to rust and deteriorate. Man, it's Jesus. That's it. He's the head. We take our cues from him. We walk with him as simply as we possibly can. And we keep coming back to the reality of forgiven sins. Glorious. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this reminder tonight in your word. And if we didn't know how old the book of Colossians is, we'd swear that this is your prophecy update, talking about the world today, and the church today. But Lord, we don't want to, we could take easy pot shots at other churches for being so religious and so legalistic and so into show business and the flesh. But they're not our problem. Our problem is the extent to which we are doing this personally. And so Lord, help us to start there and stay there. And to repent when we've added to the simplicity of the gospel. And help us simply to enjoy you, to appreciate you, to be thankful to you. And to live out the gospel. Forgiveness to everyone we encounter. To declare that good news. 
and to live in a way that doesn't condemn people, that doesn't judge people, but to live in a way that draws people to our head, Jesus Christ. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.